Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting at verse 19, reading down through verse 22 to get context. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it, and now in the preaching and hearing of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, meet with us as we consider this most sacred scripture. Guide and direct us in your holy truth, that we might know it, and that the truth would set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue our study in the foundations of faith. We looked at the books of the Old Testament last Sabbath. This evening we'll look at the books of the New. Notice there verse 19, he says to these Gentile believers with Jews in one body, but to the Gentiles in particular, ye are no more strangers and foreigners. In time past, verse 11 told them, ye were in time past Gentiles in the flesh, but you are no more. At one time, strangers and foreigners. This word stranger means one foreign, one alien. It is the opposite of a polites, a citizen. That's where we get our word politics from. One who is a citizen versus one who is a stranger. And then the word foreigner in our English Bibles. Used, Freiburg says in his lexicon, of a Gentile not yet belonging to God's people, a foreigner, a non-member of a family, as opposed to an oikeos, a member of a family or a household. So you were excluded from the civil life and the family life. You used to be, he says, excluded from the kingdom and from the family and household of God. You are now citizens. You are now members of the family. You are part of the inheritance. Once you were, but this is no longer the case. You are now subject to his kingdom. You have a new country, a new king, and new laws. Now, if you remember from Revelation 18, the merchants, you remember what they did? Were they content with the homegrown goods of their country? No. They went and sought foreign wares outside of the king's dominions and laws, and they would bring them in and profit in the church based off of these foreign wares. Merchants. But now you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Fellow citizens of one nation, Household of God, one family. You're included in both, whereas you used to be excluded. You are subject to the king's dominions. You are adopted into his testament and household. 
These are the two aspects he's dealing with. I note then this doctrine that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is Catholic or universal under the gospel. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is Catholic or universal under the gospel. It is not confined to one nation. In the Old Testament, God chose one nation under God, that's it. God excluded all other nations. He chose to do that. He had the right to do that. Acts 17.30 says that God winked at the times of that ignorance, and now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. What was once unique to Israel is now available to all men, to all families, and to all nations. If they embrace his promise, if they obey his precepts, if they receive the gospel, if they obey the law. Isaiah 19, you may look this up at your leisure. Isaiah 19, verses 18 through 25, all the unique things of the Exodus and of the book of Joshua applied to the Gentiles. Isaiah 19, 18 through 25. And Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. What was once for one nation is now for all. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is Catholic or universal under the gospel. Catholic just means throughout the entirety. Kath halas, the whole thing throughout the whole thing. This is a rebuke to the Judaizing tendency of some who wish to make national, ethnic, or cultural bounds within the church of Jesus Christ. They want to restrict Catholicity. Well, you see, you are actually strangers and foreigners. You're not fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And they'll do this in various ways. Some will have Judaizing doctrines where you have to go back and observe all the old yoke of the ceremonies, or at least the ones that they like and can do. Oh, we have to observe these little ceremonies here. What do those do? You know why God put those in place? Among other things, it was to separate the nations, the Gentiles, from his people Israel. I'm going to make you a separate people. So don't eat this, don't wear this, don't do that, now do this, now do that. Why? So that you don't blend in with these Gentiles. I don't want you to be like them. I don't want you to be unholy. Wear a border on your garment. Why? Because it's good or evil in itself? No. So that it will remind you, he says, of my true moral law, my true commandments and statutes. There is a Judaizing tendency to somehow make these little ethnic cultural bounds within the church of Christ. Now, in the visible church, we acknowledge that for administrative ease, God divides up the whole church, which is one in Christ, into national boundaries. We recognize that. We understand that. And that within national boundaries, God is divided up by regions. And within regions, we would say there are presbyteries. And within presbyteries, there are congregations. But there is no theoretical objection to a universal or a ecumenical church throughout the oikumenos, the whole inhabited earth. That's what ecumenical means. The wicked abuse it to mean we should not believe the truth. We should all hold hands with the Antichrist. No. Ecumenical just means throughout the whole world. There is no theoretical objection to this because we are all one in Christ. But there is a practical objection 
There are national boundaries that exist. They are real. We are not globalists. We are not communists. We don't believe in the international brotherhood of men. No, we believe that we are, yes, all created in the image of God. And in the church, we are all saved by his grace. Fellow citizens and the household of God, we're all united. But there are national boundaries. And within those national boundaries, we may not restrict where the Lord does not restrict. I had a man tell me once with a straight face that northern people should not be allowed in a southern church. Well, they're culturally northern. They can't be here as part of this church. And then I took him to the confession. Well, what is the uh, membership of the church? Those that profess the true religion and their children. Does this northern person profess the true religion? Yes. Can he be part of the church? Yes. Can he sit at the Lord's table with me? Yes. So we don't make distinctions where scripture does not. There is a Judaizing tendency among some to build up the walls of segregation that put apart the church of Christ. Whereas if you went to Ephesus, what did he tell them? There are Jews in this congregation. There are Gentiles in this congregation. He doesn't name which nations, but they were together in one body, fellow citizens of the household of God itself. No more strangers, no more foreigners brought nigh by the, by the blood of Christ. Let us in exhortation rejoice, be glad that God has taken those once foreigners, once strangers, and has adopted us into his household, made us fellow citizens with the saints. We are God's heirs. We are God's house. We are his Israel. Not those people over there with the little blue flag, you know, the little Satan stars going up and down. That's what Satan says, up is down and down is up. You know what Israel says? The Israelis over there, down is up and up is down. That's what their flag tells you, that they're Satanists, okay? We're not that, that people. We are the true Israel of God itself. Fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God himself. Let us rejoice. God has made us his heirs. Let us rejoice that our ancestors, excluded from the life of God, were incorporated by his grace. Notice verse 20. These Gentiles, we Gentiles, no more foreigners, no more strangers, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now this word built upon is very interesting. It is a uh, participle of the passive sort. This was done to you, not by you. God, in other words, built you upon. God is the one who puts the stones in the wall. He laid the foundation, he puts in the stones. You are built by God himself. And this is an aorist passive participle, done at once. Done to you by God. Now it's interesting, the word built upon contains the word upon in it the verb itself. But then the apostle does something that is common in the New Testament. He says, built upon, upon. 
Ep oikadameo means to build upon. And then he says, ek oikadameo epi. He adds another upon. You're built upon, upon. You are supremely connected with this foundation, in other words. That's the idea. Upon, upon this foundation, God built you. Now what, pray tell, is this blood-bought household, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this fellow citizenship, this household of God, what are we built upon, upon? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. We have been built by God himself upon, upon this sure, this solid foundation. A foundation, this Greek word means that on which a structure is built. If you've ever tried to build on dirt or sand, you find that it doesn't last very long. You need something heavy, something weighty, or something solid, or preferably all of the above. Then you can build up and the foundation won't move on you. It'll be solid, it'll bear up the weight. This foundation that bears up the weight of the saints of the living God, those Gentiles and Jews incorporated into one household, into one kingdom, what bears up the weight? The apostles and prophets. They are what the structure is built upon. God's nation, God's house, the saints of the living God, God's heritage, they are built upon the apostles and prophets. And mark it well, not upon their relics and their bones, not upon their supposed oral traditions, but upon the written word of Almighty God. That's what he means by the apostles and prophets. As we saw last week from Matthew 24, or excuse me, Matthew 23 and Luke 24, when he says the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what is he talking about? He's talking about books, books that you can open, books that you can read, and we saw that in extensive detail last week. But here, the apostles and prophets, the writings of the apostles, the writings of the prophets, the Old and the New Testaments. God spoke through the prophets, through Moses, through the Psalms, through the writings. God spoke through the apostles. Let's do a tour of the New Testament on this point. Open to Matthew chapter 10, please. Matthew chapter 10. We'll read verses 19 and 20. Page 971 of your pew Bibles. Matthew 10, verse 19. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Notice, not by you. It's as if God possesses them. Remember when the man was taken with demons? The demons would speak in him. They would hold conversations with Jesus. They would plead not to torment them before the time, for example. Allow us to go to those swine. God would so possess the apostles that when they spoke, it was not their words. 
It was God, the Spirit of the Father, speaking in them. Open to John 14, please. Page 1084. John 14. There are various fools running around the world claiming that the writings of the apostles are the mere spouting off of men. They don't know what they're talking about. John 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you most things. Is that what it says in your copy? Do you have the Textus Corruptus or something? He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Did the apostles change the doctrine that Jesus taught? No. All the things that he taught them, the Spirit shall teach the same. All the things they heard before will be brought to their memory. Please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, page 1192. So when the apostles preached, their words were the oracles of God. And when they wrote, their words were the scriptures of Almighty God. 1 Thessalonians 2, page 1192. Verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing because... When ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Is the preaching of the apostles the word of God or the word of men? Here he says it is the word of God. Now, Look over at chapter, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, just a few pages over. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, Jesus had promised that when they spoke, who would be speaking in them? the spirit of their father. And so when they wrote letters or when they preached with their own voices, these words we call the apostolic tradition. They had to receive them and they had to hold fast to those words to stand fast and not let them slip, not let themselves be moved from those doctrines. Now look down at chapter 3, verse 14 on the next page. The brethren are encouraged not to grow weary in well-doing. Then verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Do you know what he's saying? This letter is a standard for church fellowship. If someone says, I believe in Jesus 
and they will not obey what the epistle says, the writings of an apostle, they ought not to be part of your church. He says, cause them to be shamed by having no company with them. That's excommunication. That's where the body of Christ recognizes this person is out of the fellowship of the godly. They may say, I'm a Christian, it doesn't matter. They will not obey the epistle that I have written, therefore, kick them out so that they can be ashamed and come to repentance. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 2, page 1207 of your pew Bibles. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Hopefully this passage gets familiar to us all. We looked at this regarding the signs and wonders. Now we'll look at it from another angle. Verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Notice, Jesus our Lord began to speak the word of God, this salvation, at the first. What happened after him? Was it that the apostles made up new doctrines, new salvation? It was the apostle Paul who made up all these other things about eschatology and justification. No. Those who first heard the Lord Jesus, they spoke the same salvation that Jesus himself declared. And that God confirmed the words bearing witness with the apostles that the words they spoke were indeed the words of Christ. Some vile and ungodly liberals like to say, I love Jesus, but the apostle Paul, I kind of don't like him. What Peter says, I don't have use for that. I just want Jesus. Does Jesus agree with that assessment? No. He said, everything that I taught you, you'll remember because the Spirit will draw it to your minds and teach you. You will be taught by God. Then the apostles in their writings say, no, we are the heirs of what Christ said. We're teaching you the same salvation that began to be spoken by him and God in heaven bore witness that we are faithful witnesses of Christ. Please turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, page 1223. 1 Peter 1, we're reading verses 22 through 25. Verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, 
and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. Listen, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Who preached the gospel to these people? Well, we find out later it was Paul and Peter. Both of them did. And this word preached, was it the word of God? Yes. Was it eternal? Yes. Is it contrasted with mere human thoughts that wither away? Yes. Because this word liveth and abideth forever, and you cannot be born again without this word of the apostles. You see that, verse 23? Being born again by what? By the word of God. The same word, he says, which by the gospel was preached unto you. No apostolic scriptures, no regeneration. Second Peter chapter 1, please. Page 1227. Peter wants them to remember the things he taught them after his death. Verse 15, now verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have... Also, a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. What's he talking about? He's talking about the words of the apostles. They're preaching, they're writing, as he referred to it, as the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. So here it is a more sure word of prophecy. If you can rely on the Old Testament, which you can, you can rely more so on the new. You can rely on both. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Let me ask you, were the apostles moved by the Holy Ghost? Yes, he spoke in them. He used them as his secretaries. So here he says, this word of prophecy we have as eyewitnesses, even more sure, as well as the assureness or the surety of those words of the prophets of the old as well. Now turn over to chapter 3 of this book. Next page over. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Well, that's nice, Peter, but you don't really have the authority to tell us what to do, right? No, that's wrong that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. What's that talking about? The Old Testament scriptures. Those are the words spoken by God himself through the prophets in the Old Testament, that you may be mindful 
both of those words spoken before by the holy prophets and of what else? And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. You see, the words of the prophets in the Old Testament, the sacred scriptures inspired by God, how does Peter conceive of those as compared to the New Testament writings? Same, same thing. The commandments we give, the promises issued by the prophets, listen to them both. They have equal authority. God is speaking to you in those two. Now, verses 15 and 16 concerning the Apostle Paul. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. You know what Peter is doing? All those letters of the Apostle Paul, you should listen to those things. They're the word of God. Verse 16. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also the other, what? Scriptures unto their own destruction. What other scriptures? Wait a second. Are the writings of the Apostle Paul on par with the other scriptures? Yes, they are, as a matter of fact. So are his writings, and Peter knew it. This is the second epistle, he says, I now write unto you, and this is the commandment of the apostles of our Lord and Savior. You should remember the prophets, you should remember the apostles, and Lest you get confused, Paul was an apostle, Peter says. In all of his epistles, writing to you of these things, which the wicked and unstable twist as they do the other scriptures, meaning Paul's writings are scripture. Please open to Revelation chapter 21. This will be our final verse we consider here in this tour. Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14. This is describing the glorious city of God, the wife of the Lamb. This city had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of whom? The twelve apostles of the Lamb, those sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, with his authority. No apostles no Christ, no foundation in their writings, no heaven, no word preached and written by the apostles, no regeneration. Their words are on par with the scriptures of the Old Testament. Now please turn back to Ephesians 2, if you would. 
page 1180 of your pew Bibles. No apostles, no Christ, no Christ, no salvation, period, full stop, end of story. Verse 20 again. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. But you see, I just want Christ, I don't want the apostles. You might think I'm making this up, I am not. There is a whole system of error and falsehood built up on this distinction between, oh, well, Jesus said this, those words written in red. Oh, those apostle words over there, they're not written in red. Are they really that important? Shouldn't we just focus? That's why they print Bibles that way. It's liberalism. Shouldn't we just focus on the words in red? No, Jesus said not to. He said, you better listen to those that I send, my apostles. If you don't listen to them, you don't listen to me. And if you don't listen to me, you don't listen to the Father. You see? No apostles, no salvation. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Where do all the foundation stones point us? Where do all the apostles tell us to find everlasting life? Whom do they preach as Lord? Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone, the word personal, the Logos himself, and the word scriptural, the apostles and prophets. These together make one complete house. The word personal, that is Christ himself, and the word scriptural, the Bible, the oracles of God. Christ declares infallibly, inerrantly, and authoritatively his will, where? In the sacred scriptures of the apostles and prophets. The Westminster annotations say this, Your faith, whereby you subsist in the communion of saints, hath for its infallible and immovable ground the whole doctrine of the Old and New Testaments. Would you like to be part of the house? Would you like to be built up into a spiritual house giving praise to God? Would you like to be born again? Would you like to inherit the heavenly city? Well, you must receive these truths the infallible and immovable ground, that foundation, the whole doctrine of the Old and the New Testament. The main subject whereof is Christ, who, is, who in his own person is the real and personal foundation and, as it were, the cornerstone where the strength, the great strength of this house lieth. I note then this doctrine. There is a fixed standard, a collection of books, which we call the New Testament. There is a fixed standard, a collection of books, which we call the New Testament. In explanation of this, let us review what we saw. Christ our Lord promised to breathe out these truths by his Spirit. He gave his apostles power to preach God's word infallibly and a commission to write his word inerrantly. 
as the companion volume to Moses. And the apostles knew this. When Peter's writing about his own writings, when Paul's writing about his own, when Peter writes about Paul's writings, what do they assume? These are the oracles of God. These are the scriptures of God. These are on a par with what God said through Moses and, Eli and Elijah and through Isaiah and all the prophets of old. These are scriptures. The word incarnate is the real and personal foundation strengthening the house of God. The spirit of the Father dwelled in the apostles. He spoke in them. Jesus said he would. The Holy Ghost taught the apostles all things. He brought all things to their memory. When they preached and wrote, their preaching and writing was properly received, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The disciples were to stand fast and hold the traditions which they had been taught, whether by word or in our epistle. They were to make the epistle of the blessed Paul a rule and canon of church fellowship and excommunication. Don't listen to this letter? Kick him out. Shame him so that he comes to repentance. The salvation that the apostles preached was first preached by Christ, confirmed by the gifts of the Spirit and the fathers co-testifying to the word they preached and wrote. God's people are begotten by the apostolic gospel preached and written. This apostolic word liveth, abideth, and endureth forever. Peter wanted a record that would be kept by the people of God to keep them always in remembrance after his decease. These are his letters. The apostles' words were no fables. They were confirmed by God himself were a more sure word of prophecy on a level with the God-breathed oracles of the Old Testament. This stands as a rebuke, this testimony of the apostles and our Lord himself, of any unclean and foul beast that would tread upon the sacred oracles of the New Testament as the mere words of men, or in some way, partially the words of men, partially the words of God, or as something subpar to the Old Testament. We don't need that new. We got everything we need in the old. Half true. This is a rebuke to any unclean spirit that says the church can do without the scriptures, whether by their practice or in their theory, if they say the scriptures aren't necessary or treat it as if it's not, that is an unclean spirit. The foundational rule, the canon or measuring stick, the king's rod by which all doctrines, worship, spirits, fathers, councils, confessions, catechisms, sermons. If you want to measure and rule and see, does the king approve of this? That's how you know. The apostles and prophets, that's it. Another doctrine. The books of the Old and New Testaments are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. The books of the Old and New Testaments are given by inspiration of God 
to be the rule of faith and life. What should I believe? Faith. What should I do? Life. These books of the Old and New Testaments are the rule for our faith and our life. What of men's private spirits? The traditions of the church, the doctrines and commandments of men, our feelings, our cultural norms, family traditions, scholarship, man-made holiness, will worship, our exaltation of these subordinated authorities in the family, the church, or the state. What do we say of them? Do they measure by the king's rule or not? Is this the standard, the canon of Christ? Or is this someone's fancy or some tradition with a long beard? God's word is the book that judges all other judges. The word of God is called a kritikos, a critic, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is judged by no man. Receive then in exhortation the king's rule. Be ruled by it. Believe its precious promises. Be born again of its incorruptible seed. Say amen to God bearing witness with the holy apostles. Build upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Have Jesus Christ as your cornerstone. Live the word. Read the word. Sing the word. Hear the word. Devour the word. Pray in accordance with its rules. Live by its laws. Be saved by its gospel. Be measured and measure all things by the king's read, the king's rule. Amen. Let's pray.